free market party now is saying that we're going to outlaw certain ideas from being spread within private companies. This is the nanny state at its worst. And I think the GOP is starting to lose itself. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Well, Corey, it is hot outside in New York in December right now. Yeah, it's really weird, Robbie. I've been here for a few months and it hasn't really gotten super cold, but every morning when I get on the subway, I always see you New Yorkers bundled up in these giant puffy jackets and coats and it's like 50. And I'm just wondering, what happened here? Like, what happened to you all to make you so prepared for for this cold weather that's supposed to be coming. I think just people don't check the weather. That's my that's my oh. take. I think people just, they just assume it's yeah, December. They, they, they look at the calendar and they're like, it's December, I'm gonna wear my puffy jacket. But you know, I checked it this morning and so um, I was pleasantly surprised, even though our planet might be falling apart. Uh, it's probably. quite lovely out there right now. Yeah, it's, it is, there's some upsides to it. All right, we got some interesting stories coming up today, Ravi. Coming up, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis introduces a Stop Woke Act to fight CRT in schools. But does it go too far? And then an Arizona mom faced up to one year in jail after leaving her son alone on the playground. We discussed the delicate balance between child independence and child safety. Also, religion is at an all-time low with 30% of Americans self-identifying as non-religious. We discussed the implications for American politics and culture. And later, Robbie will sit down with Libertarian Liz to talk about the latest spat between Elon Musk and Elizabeth Warren. But first things first, Ravi Julian Assange is back in the news. And, and why are we talking about him again? Right. So uh, a high court in Great Britain on Friday ruled that Julian could be extradited. Uh, they approved the extradition to the USA. So Julian has a chance to appeal, but it was the high, it was the chief justice, the chief justice of the UK, who's the highest judge in England and Wales, who, who ordered the extradition. So it's very unlikely uh, that an appeal will go ahead. So that Assange, who's the WikiLeaks founder, could be extradited to the US uh, and he's facing charges. And he's he's got a whole host of charges stacked up against him here in the United States. And you can group them into two different categories. One charge is about conspiracy to hack a computer, mm -hmm. essentially uh, alleging that he worked with Chelsea Manning to hack a password to get access to classified information in the US. So that's one charge. Mm -hmm. And then you have a whole set of charges around the Espionage Act about Assange, whether his dissemination of the material that was hacked violated U.S. law. And so uh, this could be quite serious. And I think this has stirred a debate about the First Amendment in the United States right now. Well, the biggest thing that I have to say about how it relates to the First Amendment is Julian Assange is not an American citizen. So does do constitutional rights apply to him in this particular case? You would think that there's a pretty straightforward answer to this question. Uh -huh. But, you know, I've been calling around this morning mm -hmm. and asking, you know, various legal scholars, you know, what what is the rule here? Yeah. And actually, the Supreme Court has been inconsistent here. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the U.S. alleges that it doesn't apply to him. But I think this is going to be tested. Like, we're it's, it's unclear right now. And so, but I think a bigger question is not necessarily just... Uh, whether it does apply to him, but whether it should apply to him is mm -hmm. a big question. And I think you can separate two different sets of arguments here. One has to do with the hacking. Yeah. And to me, that's fairly straightforward. So uh, this is like pretty, like pretty clear to me that if he assisted Chelsea Manning in hacking U.S. classified databases, then he should go to jail for that. Because yeah, absolutely. That's different from standard journalistic practice, Absolutely. right? Most journalists will, they understand 
the that once you aid somebody in getting access to information that crosses, that the, crosses line. the line that yeah. was actually like a plot line for the the sorkin show the newsroom actually oh yeah, one, one yeah. Of the, the i, I remember that might have been the dev patel character somebody yeah. was you know under you know facing a lot of heat because they assisted somebody mm -hmm. to get classified information mm -hmm. but the espionage act uh, charges i think are different because a lot of people are pointing out that no matter what you think of assange uh, the it's hard to uh, to separate what he did uh, in disseminating information mm -hmm. from uh, what journalists do all the time when they receive, for instance, the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, and that's, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that the reason why the Obama administration didn't really pursue Assange because they said something to the effect of, well, if we pursue him, we'll have to pursue the New York Times for publishing the information. Right, and it's hard to, to sift through all of this because in some cases, the government was was hiding their intent, and mm -hmm. it was actually mm -hmm. through a clerical error that we even found out a few years ago that the government was was planning to charge him for some of the stuff in the first place. Yeah. So it's it's weird also to discern the political motivations here because the Trump administration was as hard on Assange as anybody. They're the ones who stacked the 17 or so Espionage Act charges uh, against him. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange facing 17 new charges. This adds to his prior indictment, accusations that he violated the Espionage Act himself related to WikiLeaks' famous release of stolen U.S. government documents in 2010. But at the same time, Trump was having this kind of sort of love affair. Yeah, in, WikiLeaks. Uh, what's interesting is it's hard to discern the politics of all this because, yeah. you know, Obama was, was the first, they first introduced charges against Assange yeah. here and or they introduced charges against Assange and they kind of took a step. They kind of backed off. Well, they took they did take one step forward when it comes to the Espionage Act, because if mm -hmm. you this is a law that's not applied very often. Mm -hmm. And the genesis of this law is really important here. It was originally only applied to people who were spies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the Rosenberg case, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. But then the Obama administration pioneered using this law against leakers. And actually, a lot of civil liberties advocates were critical of the Obama yeah. administration about that. Now, leakers are people who are actually taking the initiative to break their their obligation to to safeguard classified information. Mm -hmm. So that's that to me is a pretty clear case of a violation of US law is if you're if you're like somebody like I had a classified clearance and if I leak information I know I'm breaking the law. Yeah, that's essentially what Chelsea Manning did. Yes. And then there are other people who face charges under Espionage yeah. Act for that. Now what the Trump administration and now the Biden administration are doing is mm -hmm. taking this the, the uh, an additional step, which is saying not if you're just releasing the information are you charged, but if you're receiving the information, which is wow. Assange's case. Because remember, put the hacking aside, the Espionage Act charges against him mm -hmm. have mostly to do with disseminating information. information. And the way that the law is written is either with the intent to aid foreign governments who are hostile to the United States or the knowledge that it would aid them. Meaning like, I might not want Russia to benefit from this release or the Taliban to benefit from this release, but just mm -hmm. the knowledge that it could help them, mm -hmm. given how vague this law is, could be a violation of US law. And that's what got civil liberties advocates yeah. up in arms and, and other people who are defenders of press freedoms. So. This is a difficult question. Yeah, I think Assange, he gets a lot of support from these people who say, well, there's, an, you know, you have to have this freedom of the press and freedom of journalism. But he did put people in harm's way. I think a lot of people were put in harm's way by what he did. 
But I, to me, he just seems like a political pawn in all of this because, you know, like you said, Trump administration went after him, but then Donald Trump was saying, I love WikiLeaks right. because they helped him in leaking some of Hillary's emails in 2016. And now Biden seems to be really pursuing Assange, you know, kind of going against what the Obama administration did just because they're angry about what he did to Hillary. Right. So it's just this weird kind of political game that they seem to be playing with him. Yeah. And a big question to me is like, what would the Obama administration have done if they could have gotten him extradited? Like, yeah. There's a part of me that believes that they might have stacked charges against him too. So who knows? But I think I'm with you on, I don't love Assange the person. And yeah. I think that he- He's got some shady stuff. I mean, in Sweden, he was he was accused of rape, wasn't he? He was accused of rape. And I, those charges, I think, they didn't wind up sticking. Yeah. So so even if you put that aside, mm -hmm. he what makes him different than traditional journalists is that he indiscriminately releases information. So yeah. when you know there was a quarter of a million classified cables from the State Department that they released- as part of one of the big document dumps. And the problem with these documents is that like a traditional journalist would go through those documents and saying, all right, who are we revealing? Mm -hmm. Are we putting anybody in harm's way, et cetera? Now he just released them all. And yeah. there's a lot of reporting to suggest that that put people in harm's way. There are dissidents, political dissidents, mm -hmm. journalists, et cetera, mm -hmm. in hostile foreign countries who uh, were cooperating with the United States or working with the United States who were put in harm's way for that, including uh, he released a whole set of information in Afghanistan where yeah. there are people who were cooperating with the U.S. government against the Taliban, for example. And, you know, if, if you're a traditional journalist and you're following traditional journalistic practices, you're going to you're gonna um, redact information that you think is going to be harmful Harm to people. somebody. You're going to contact sources of, of a story to give them a heads up that the story is coming and, and seek their comment. None of this stuff was happening in a lot of these cases. So my verdict on him as a journalist mm -hmm. is that I'm not a fan, and I'm not a fan of him as a person because he often seems to focus so much of his ire and attention on democracies and yeah. doesn't seem to have a lot of attention for dictatorships. And often, through releasing this information, he's aiding he's them. dictatorships by exposing dissidents who are trying to expose those dictatorships. So I don't love him as a journalist, but th that's not the question, is do yeah. I like him as a person mm -hmm. or do I like him as a journalist? The question is, is, this, does, is what he did illegal and is that law right? And where I come down on this is that within the reading of the Espionage Act, given how vague it is, they could probably successfully prosecute him mm -hmm. on this. But I think the question is, how can we change this law to make it more precise, more tailored to the things that we're concerned about without like making journalism criminal? And ultimately, if Assange is found guilty of these leaks and everything, he revealed crimes, war crimes that were committed in Afghanistan and Iraq. Are we going to pursue the people who committed those crimes? Yeah, that's you know that's a big critique from people like Glenn Greenwald is, mm -hmm. is where where are the charges for for the war crimes that he exposed, and and I think in the end this is you know something we said about Rittenhouse is you know hard cases make bad law. Yeah, and in this case I think people need to separate what you think of Assange the person and the journalist versus what precedent are we setting that could be applied to you know situations that people may be more sympathetic to. So that's where I am there. But we got another story, Corey. Florida Governor DeSantis has introduced a bill. He's calling it the Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, the Stop Woke Act. And what this uh, allows them to do is it's going to, you know, it's, if they pass it, is going to allow parents to sue schools for teaching critical race theory. Corey, is this a good idea? Uh, well, it's a terrible idea for, for so many reasons. But I, I'm under the impression that it's not actually something that's been introduced in Florida's legislature yet. It's just basically something that he announced. Yeah. Right? Just like for some political I think points. it's safe to say it'll pass given the, 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 the partisan split in yeah. the Florida legislature. And there was also a, a Florida state school board set of policies that are already in place. And this, I think, just takes an extra step to codify those policies and give a private right of action mm -hmm. for 
for parents and employees. So parents either to sue their school districts mm-hmm. and also recoup the costs of that uh, of those oh, causes wow. of action, but also give employees the right to sue their employers if they're you know pushing certain things that and we'll see how they define this, that they define as critical race theory. But Ravi, as a former educator, what do you feel, or I should say, how do you feel about a law that would basically allow parents to sue a school because they don't like what that school is teaching? I mean, what if this extends beyond just critical race theory? Right. You know, Matt Iglesias had a a funny tweet where he was basically saying, you know, now Republicans are fans of curriculum standardization and plaintiffs, uh, the plaintiffs bar. You know, and what he means is this is this is a boon to lawyers. And this is, uh, I, I would see it as added bureaucracy that yeah. teachers have to worry about. I'm, I'm generally uh, a critic of bureaucracy wherever I see it mm-hmm. in education. I, I want schools to have the freedom to do more and not have to worry about violating the law. And what concerns me about this one is that it, that based on the previous Florida Board of Education policy, it goes way too far. Yeah. So this is one provision that that was in the Florida Board of Education policy. Is they said you may not define American history as something other than the creation of a new nation based on universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. So that's so broad. Extremely so broad. You can't teach history if it's not in line with the principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. I would, you know, any reasonable historian would say, well. Slavery existed after I mean, the Declaration, after Declaration of Independence. Yeah. They didn't even so follow the Declaration of Independence. So yeah. now the schools have to follow what the founding fathers themselves didn't even follow. Right. Didn't even follow. That doesn't make any sense. That's I want to listen real quick to what Ron DeSantis said when he was introducing uh, this this new bill. You think about what MLK uh, stood for. He said he didn't want people judged on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. You listen to some of these people nowadays; they don't talk about that. I just think it's utterly disgusting that he tries to invoke Martin Luther King Jr. Because so many white, na- and I'm not saying he's a white nationalist, but it seems like he's definitely trying to appeal to white nationalists. And so many of them try to use MLK to say, oh, well, you know, he would have not stood for this and not stood for that. But first of all, critical race theory doesn't have any real definition by the standards that they're using. So they could say anything is critical race theory that deals with teaching race in schools. That means you might not even be able to teach about Martin Luther King Jr. based off of some of the standards that they're trying to set. And also too, whenever you hear people try to say, well, we're not supposed to look at your skin color. We're not supposed to pay attention to that. That just means, oh, we're not going to pay attention to that when it is being used against you. Like there are certain court cases and certain things, especially in places like Florida and Alabama, where race is definitely a part of the reason why a person is dealing with some sort of discrimination. And if you can't even look at that and that's not even a factor then how can someone prove you know a discrimination case like a workplace uh discrimination case for example right and as we've talked about on the show plenty of times there are actual problems with the things that we're grouping together with critical race theory Mm -hmm. being taught Mm -hmm. right and and as i pointed about pointed out in others Mm -hmm. this term now is not the the narrow term of of what it was when it was used in legal scholarship it now includes a lot of other things Very broad. and that's not just the fault of the right that's the that's the fault of a lot of people pushing these ideas in schools and mm-hmm. i do think that there is a valid debate about the misuse of some terms like equity and, mm-hmm. and how they're actually used to push curriculum that's, in my opinion, bad for kids or to loosen standards in schools in ways that actually harm our education system. I think there's a really important debate about stuff like that, but I actually think DeSantis does it a disservice when he when he pushes these kind of vague yeah. rules that yeah. are really hard, if not impossible, to follow. And it just doesn't feel like it's on the level to me. And there, there was something he said, we also have to protect our people and our kids from some very pernicious ideologies that are trying to be forced upon them all across the country. And so 
this to me is the GOP at its best is like the anti-fragile party that says like, you know, Yellowstone style, like <laughs> push your, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps yeah. and be tough and, yeah. you know, don't be a snowflake or whatever. But this seems like the opposite of that. It's saying like, Very opposite. remember, this is not just kids, this is employees. Mm -hmm. Like saying that the free market party now is saying that there are, we're going to outlaw certain ideas from being yeah. spread within private companies. This is the nanny state at its worst. And I think the GOP is starting to lose itself a little bit in this debate. If you look at the Florida governor's website, he cites all of these examples of extreme critical race theory being taught in schools. One of them he cites, I believe it was in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Philadelphia school system. In a Philadelphia elementary school, forced fifth graders to celebrate black communism and simulated a black power rally to quote free angela davis from prison where apparently they were teaching black communism and they were t talking about like angela davis free angela davis and things like that she was associated with the black panther party which was a very far left you know communist associated or i say marxist party but it's weird it's like yeah we don't want people to push propaganda to children but do we not want them to at least teach what was going on? I mean, if we can't teach about communism in school, I don't see how you could teach about the entire Cold War period right. in the United States history. Like, I mean, you're just going to skip over that entire thing. Like, you have to at least teach. If you don't want kids to become communists, you might should teach them what that even is. Right. And it seems like something like this is making it where you can't even talk about these things in right. school. Like a good example is they, they ban, I think they're going to ban the, the, the teaching of the 1619 Project. Yes, right? that was the, a part of The New York Times project from mm -hmm. Nicole Hannah-Jones. Mm -hmm. Now, do I like Nicole Hannah-Jones? Do I think she's an honest intellectual? I have very big problems with her, especially mm -hmm. on charter school issues, where even yeah. throughout the past few weeks, she she tweets patently untrue things mm -hmm. about charter schools. Mm -hmm. Now, I haven't looked deeply into the 1619 Project, but let's pretend for a second that that lack of intellectual honesty then extends to the 1619 Project. It feels weird to me that we're singling out yeah. like, specific pieces of curriculum like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say... You're a teacher and you want to actually have your kids critically engage with the 1619 Project and actually find flaws in it yeah. or or introduce 1619 Project and some of its criti critiques. Like that's actually a really good lesson in my yeah. opinion. And you're going to outlaw that because you think kids are too fragile to even be exposed to these ideas. You know, what winds up happening is, and, and I'm going to use their argument about why we shouldn't ban things on social media is mm -hmm. it drives people uh, to actually seek out those ideas. So Absolutely. like these kids are going to go to college and they're going to, it's going to be like drinking right it's like oh my god i can get my hands on this this stuff that people are telling me i can't have oh yeah and i think in some ways it could radicalize people in the ways that they don't want i i didn't even think about that that was a great analogy i'd also just like to point out that florida there are 20 states in the united states of america that have better public school systems in florida and they also are in the bottom 10 when it comes to sat scores so maybe ron DeSantis let's work on that should be focusing on that instead of critical race theory so there's this other story that we that popped up i want to say reason published this story and it was about a woman in Arizona. Arizona. This actually happened last Thanksgiving. She left her seven-year-old son and I think a five-year-old friend that was with him in a park unattended to go to the grocery store. And apparently she almost got like arrested for this and almost faced a year in prison for this. And as a result of this, she was put on some secret list in Arizona for like really bad parents who like may not be able to keep their kids. Like they didn't take their kids away from her, but she was put on this list, like this bad parents list in Arizona that it makes it where she's ineligible to work with children now uh, in her professional life. And so the debate that's sparking now is that was it that big of a deal to leave a seven-year-old kid in the daylight for just a few, you know, I don't know how long it was, but for not a very long time period, less than an hour, I'm sure, in a park by themselves. And, then, and there were friends. She had friends that were in the park that were near the kids. I mean, what do you think about this? Is this, is this Was this going too far trying to arrest her for this? Yes, I, I do think it was going too far. And I think 
I think it, we should be very careful about how much of parenting the state gets involved in. Like, oh, obviously, yeah. if you abuse your kids, mm-hmm. if you don't feed your kids, if you're leaving them for super extended periods of time without any kind of assistance, those are those are major issues. Mm-hmm. But I think anything that's even close to the line, we should defer to parents to just be parents. And I think if it were just this issue, it wouldn't be a big story. But there are so many stories across America of whether, you know, somebody leaving their kids in a car and going into Target or, or you know, there's a case uh, that there's this book called The Coddling of the American Mind, uh-huh. which I, 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 is a book I love. They talk about a 2015 Florida case where yeah. there are two parents charged uh, with felony child neglect when they delayed, they were delayed getting home, uh-huh. and they had an 11 year old who was mm-hmm. waiting for the parents to get there. Mm-hmm. And the neighbor called the police on the parents. The what? parents got arrested, and then the kid was sent to foster care for a period of time. And the parents had to do a training on like play, like how to oh do play. Goodness. This stuff is excessive. That's ridiculous. This is excessive. And I think like yeah. we've got this sense that kids are, you know, this gets to our sort of fragile point from before. It's like the, that kids are so fragile that we they can't hang out in a park for an hour. Yeah, that's those are pretty shitty neighbors. I'm sorry, that was just that was messed up. But. I don't know. As a parent, I look at this story and I think that it really boils down to the age of the kids and the environment. For instance, these kids were seven and five and that's seven's borderline to be like eight, nine. Yeah. You know, seven, six, that's kind of borderline. That is kind of young to be left unattended in a park with no parental supervision. Also, the environment's a big uh, factor here because apparently this was a pretty safe park. There hadn't been any record of abduction. I think that's one of the things that she said because uh, she's gotten a lawyer and everything to try to fight a lot of the things that are going on for right now. And she said that she did her research and there's never been apparently anybody abducted from this park. And I think that that plays a big role in why I think parents have been so sheltered. I mean, you were doing some research about how back in like the 80s and 90s, there was an uptick in the reporting of missing children, but there was actually, but the actual cases were going down. Yeah. So there are two big cases uh, in, you know, decades ago, back when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. e, uh, there's a kid named Eton Pats in New York City. And then there was most notably Adam Walsh. Yes, of course. Uh, and that led to a movement across the United States where we created databases mm-hmm. and organizations and government entities. And then there shows like America's Most Wanted, which yeah. Adam Walsh's dad yeah. created and, mm-hmm. and hosted that led to this overall uh, just perception that there was an epidemic of abductions of kids and just a greater awareness. And that led to things like more visibility of when kids were abducted. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of good stuff came in that. Yeah. But as the same book that I was talking about, The Coddling of the American Mind, talks about, it, it led to a little bit of a moral panic, as the authors describe it, where it led to a what these authors, and I would agree, is a sort of overparenting. Yeah. And what's, what's fascinating is I... Am of the generation that just missed the overparenting. Yeah, like yeah. I was, you know, I don't. I, my mom listens to this podcast, so I, I, I won't overstate, <laughs> like, sh- like how independent we were. But mm-hmm. I was often waiting in cars while she went into stores, and she worked two jobs, and mm-hmm. and I, obviously the age matters. But I was often out hanging out uh, in my neighborhood, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, and and taking risks and all that. But I think so much about what I, I'm proud of about myself come comes from this the sense of independence I yes. have and the risks that I took and that I learned from. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a little bit worried that we're, we're putting kids in bubbles now yeah. and not allowing them to take any risks because that in and of itself is a risk. You know, like yeah. overprotecting your kids that, is a risk. Yeah, that causes other problems. I hope those weren't hot cars you were being left in. I hope they were like- you, To be honest, and my mom's going to kill me for this, I do remember being in hot cars from time to time and I fucking opened the door. You know, <laughs> so it's like, uh, like, and my mom's going to hate me for saying that. Uh, but like, yeah, I, I, she had this 
Chevy Lumina van, which if you remember is like the <laughs> Dustbuster van. Yeah, yeah. And I remember she once went into a, a she's going to fucking hate this, uh, a tanning salon. Okay. And oh, okay. I was waiting okay. there and I remember I walked out. I don't remember how old I was. It was a McDonald's across the street. I got McDonald's. I got back in and, and I fell asleep in the car. It was so hot. But it was like, <laughs> but my mom just go to jail for that. Yeah. Like she's going to murder me for this. Yeah. She's going uh, go to jail now. Murder me yeah. For this. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I totally agree that my generation uh, millennials and definitely the, the generation coming up after me, Gen Z, has been very sheltered. And it's caused a lot of problems. There's a lot of studies to say that it's caused more anxiety yep. in, in us, in our generation, and less responsibility. You know, it's given rise to what they call the participation trophy generation, where everybody thinks that, you know, everybody should get, you know, everything should be equal, and everything should be nice, because we haven't been exposed to those things that kind of prepare you for the real world. And my parents were different. I, I was left alone when I was like seven and eight. My parents are gonna kill me now. But I was left alone when I was really young too. Uh, but it's like, you know, you're right, it instills a sense of independence in you. But one thing I will say, one rebuttal to this is that is it really that bad of a thing if people are a little bit more sheltered these days? Because if you look at like teen pregnancy rates, for instance, I mean, they have just gone down dramatically in the last few years because, you know, teens don't interact anymore. And so yeah. there are some, could possibly be some upsides to being <laughs> a little sheltered. But this gets to the point, like, where do you draw the line, right? If yeah. we locked every kid in a basement <laughs> until they're 18, all Whoa. bad things that would happen to I them. I don't think I'm arguing we do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying is like, th there's always a line, right? Sure. And it's For so sure. hard to quantify. Like if you Absolutely. let kids play with scissors or climb trees or, you know, touch a hot stove or whatever, like obviously like there are different debates about like what, what, what kind of experience do you need to build in order to learn from it versus yeah. what can you just be told? And yeah. then you, yeah. you, and obviously we've all been kids and, mm -hmm. and you're a parent and I was a school principal for years. Mm -hmm. The balance of, of making kids do certain things yeah. versus letting them experience it with a little bit of guidance is, yeah. like a, is a fine balance. But most of these cases to me feel like the involvement of law enforcement is one thing if it's yeah. a community, I have my own opinions about the norms, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I have certain, I'm, I'm way more like liberal in terms of the norms. I, I, I like the fact, like for instance, a place, Costa Rica, I spent a lot of time, kids are kind of all over the place. They're swimming, yeah. they're super young ages. There's a big community that looks out for each yeah. other. You know, I have certain ideas of the norms, but the involvement of law enforcement here feels like super overkill. It's the nanny state. Yes. It definitely feels like a nanny state. So the last story we want to talk about real quick is this Pew Research poll that finds that religious affiliation among Americans is on the decline. 30% of adults now identify as religious nuns. And when I say nuns, I mean N-O-N-E-S, like <laughs> no, no religion, not nuns or not Catholics. But 30% define themselves as basically non-religious. And what do you think is behind this decline in a religion here in America? Well, I'm one of those. I'm, I would say I'm agnostic. Okay. We're definitely going to make sure my mom doesn't listen to this episode. <laughs> yeah. But... But I grew up within the Catholic Church, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I went to CYO basketball. Mm -hmm. I went to church often with my mom and with others. I went to partially to Catholic school for high school, and I love the traditions. I mm -hmm. love the community about mm -hmm. it. And so it makes me really sad that even before we saw this data, it's no secret that yeah. whether it's Catholic Catholicism or others, the, the, there's been a disintegration of these religious institutions, probably all institutions in America, probably. Yeah. But it, that makes me sad. And so... Putting that aside, what I think is going on here is I think young people in particular are driving this data. So if yeah. you dive into these polls, so much of this change is coming from young people. And I think in in part, they're more distrustful of institutions, period. Just in general, yeah. Uh, and I think another part of it is people have grown up with scandals. You know, like when I was yeah. a kid, we had the, uh, or as I was 
transitioning from childhood to adulthood, adulthood, we had the Catholic abuse scandals, for example. And I think younger people are, are they're more fluid once they see like these flawed people as mm-hmm. leaders of these institutions. They're more likely to draw, I think, more sweeping conclusions than people who've counted on those institutions their entire their lives. Entire lives. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely a lack of trust in those institutions and their leaders. You mentioned the Catholic Church scandal, but also too, when you look at a lot of Protestant churches in the South, for instance, I come from Alabama, grew up in a very religious family and most of my friends were very religious and something started happening. I don't know if it was the 2000s or kind of going into the next decade, but things started getting very political and a lot of the social changes that were happening in my generation, those uh, institutions, those churches, they started pushing back against that. And I think that really led to a lot of young people just not trusting these churches. They just felt like, well, you know what? If these churches are going to be homophobic against my friend who's a lesbian or they're going to be racist against my friend who's black, then I don't want to sit there and listen to these pastors. And so I feel like these churches have nothing to blame but themselves when it comes to this pushback because the young people, they're not going to tolerate that sort of bigotry anymore. And a lot of that bigotry, unfortunately, has been instilled in some of these churches for many decades, many centuries now. Yeah, and what you're seeing is the rise of alternative institutions. So you have like CrossFit, yoga, meditation communities. You have obviously so many online communities. And so many of those are good responses Mm -hmm. to the church. Like for example, I've traveled this country. I've probably been to every state at this point, except for maybe Alaska. Oh wow. I have often, when I get to a town, I go to their CrossFit gym mm-hmm. and it often tells you so much about, it's what the church used to be in a lot of yeah. these places. They, people are hanging out, that becomes their social circle. So they so Often they coexist with the church, obviously, but in the places that are becoming more secular, it, they're replacing them. So in some way, cases, that those can be good institutions, mm-hmm. but then there's also, I think, some bad polarization happening here. And obviously politics and, and the fact that people are starting to separate within their communities based more and more based on their their political ideas. And sometimes they're not even they're not even self-organizing within their communities. They're doing it online with somebody across the world who may yeah. share their ideo- yeah. ideology. And this is related to what we talked about with parenting, which is that park is safer if the institutions around it are you know strong and, and healthy. But the minute that those institutions start to fall apart, the physical space in communities and the ties that bond pe- bind people together start to fall apart. And so it has all these secondary effects that I'm really concerned about. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it's a trend that will continue in America. Um, and hopefully a lot of churches will probably just learn from them and, and figure out how to adapt so that they can create their message a little bit better for a younger generation. Yeah, well, actually, one thing to, to, to add to that is I spend a lot of time going to church in Nashville, for example, mm-hmm. And I find the, the the Nashville cultural experience really interesting because mm-hmm. what they've done is they've tried to adapt to young culture. Yeah. So I would go to the church that's non-denominational and the music, it's like going to a concert every yeah, day. It's yeah. like just everybody's kind of bringing their instruments and mm-hmm. singing and it's, and it's shorter, which like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, that helps. Uh, you that know, helps. like I, I'd go to these North Nashville Baptist churches and, uh, and they would be like three, four hours, yeah. but it would be like seven-year-olds out there. And then I would go to, you know, a like a 12 South church that's 45 minutes. And then mm-hmm. it's kind of like a party. Yeah. So yeah. I think people are adapting. Absolutely. All right. Great conversation. Coming up, Libertarian Liz will be here to discuss Elon Musk, Elizabeth Warren, and who's in the right. Well, Corey, Omicron is raging throughout the United States. Cornell sent all their students home. Yep. But it's hitting us close, even closer to home here in New York. I think the, the musical Hamilton uh, was canceled recently because of the outbreak. Yeah, just last night they had to, pro- uh, they had to postpone a show uh, for Hamilton. But 
There are other musicals out there that are still going on on Broadway, Ravi. As a matter of fact, we stumbled upon a musical that's very similar to Hamilton, but it's about a totally different figure in American history. Um, it's this new musical. I mean, the Times is raving about it. Everybody's talking about it. It's called Harrison. And we actually have a clip of it. We're going to play that clip huh. for you guys right now. They call me William, Henry, Harrison, military general, straight out of the garrison. Van Buren sucks, I beat him like a gentleman. America is sick, wig party is the medicine. Got the National Bank, it's coming back brand new. It's Tipper Canoe and Tyler too. I'm about to... Wow, well, Corey, that was powerful stuff. I think uh, we, I think it's Tony in their future. Oh, inspiring! I uh, yeah, that was that was really powerful. You know, we said we were going to just play a clip, but I think that was the whole thing. I think that oh, was wow. the whole musical. COVID safe, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Limiting uh, exposure. Limiting exposure, yeah. but it's so much better live. It's so much better live. You just you got You got to experience. Let's it. do it. Let's do this this weekend. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Well, we're back with Liz Wolf from Reason. We call her Libertarian Liz. <laughs> Liz, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Liz, you just recently wrote about this spat between Elon Musk and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, what is this all about? And handicap this fight for us. <laughs> so basically what's been happening, I mean, they've been antagonistic toward each other on Twitter for quite a few weeks now. Time basically gave their person of the year award to Elon Musk, which I think it's worth sort of caveating that with like, that's not necessarily an endorsement. That doesn't mean that he's, I mean, the profile that was attached to it that they wrote was very um, complimentary. But you know, the, Hitler has been person of the year, right? Yeah, I mean, in Trump, right? <laughs> which I think not them comparing Hitler and Trump, but they're clearly not fans of Trump at yeah. Time Magazine. I mean, it's more a person who's like really shaping the world that we live in and molding it in, in major ways. So so Time basically gave this this award to Elon Musk. We, you know, a lot of publicity came with it. Not that he really needs it, right? right. His net worth is $250 billion, which sounds like a made up number, but like that's the actual net worth. Uh, and, and Elizabeth Warren was basically, you know, tweeting at him saying, you need to actually pay taxes. You need to actually pay your fair share. Uh, stop freeloading off of everybody else. Stop freeloading off of the American people. And Elon Musk, you know, basically tried out a few different responses, one of which was calling her Senator Karen, <laughs> which I think is a little played out and, you know, pretty disrespectful, but it is what it is. Uh, another one was, was telling her that she reminds him of when he was growing up and his friend's mom would just like get angry about things and lose her shit, basically. <laughs> and then his most salient, most reasonable point was him saying, hey, my tax bill this year is going to be obscene. My tax bill is going to be something like nine or $10 billion. Maybe one of you the know? largest, if not the largest tax bills in American history. Probably, well, yeah, right? yeah, he's going to pay more taxes than any other American in history, basically. And he was he was making that case to her. The thing is, it's Elon Musk, right? So it's like a mixture of like an actually good point and a crap ton of trolling. Yes. What would, When you wrote about this, I think part of what you, you're kind of elevating is there's a little mixture of personal hypocrisy when it comes to Elizabeth Warren. But I think like the heart of what you and some of your colleagues at Reason um, have seized on in this moment is not just a personal hypocrisy, but the, Elizabeth Warren's vision of government. And it seems like one of the 
people are reacting to Elon Musk, not just because of his personal conduct, because I think he's become more forceful in recent weeks and months of actually pushing back against, uh, I think, like some progressive theories of government, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, Wall Street Journal basically interviewed him in a recent um, tech forum, which was, you know, for CEOs basically, but these comments obviously became public, where he was talking about like, you know, very core economic concepts like capital allocation and saying, hey, the government isn't a good allocator of capital. There are a whole bunch of us, you know, myself included, not me, but Musk included, who have a much more proven track record of successfully allocating capital, successfully being efficient in the way they sort of structure their businesses and doing a good job being good stewards of the money. And he's been really, really focused on the national debt lately. He's been basically saying, hey, build back better, infrastructure bill, all these things. Maybe they could be good ideas that we could consider. However, we are so deep in the hole that it's it's a little bit imprudent to continue to co-sign, to continue to authorize these types of things when we need a little bit more uh, fiscal prudence from, from our legislators. All of which is a really reasonable point, right? Like in, in, an, in an old era, moderates could probably agree with that. And people on both sides of the aisle could say, yeah, that seems like a reasonable thing to do. And thinking about the debt, a lot of people I talk to will say, you know what, the debt doesn't matter. U.S. can just print more money. What's your like most cogent argument about why it's important for the U.S. to rein in its debt? Like, what are the consequences of this, you know, now trillions and trillions of dollars of yeah. debt that continues to grow? Well, I'm not a huge... I'm not a super knowledgeable, you know, fiscal financial journalist type person, but I do think one of the things that sort of ties it to where we are right now is like we're dealing with really rampant inflation. It's was what the October numbers were 6.2%. I think November was a little bit higher than that, 6.8. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. But you know, a bad situation. And so now they're considering, you know, the Fed is considering hiking interest rates. So one thing to consider, like one component of this and how it relates back to national debt is we have a huge, you know, staggering national debt right now. And if interest rates get hiked, servicing the interest, servicing the national debt and paying that interest will be so much harder to do. Basically, the national debt just got more expensive and I think if it, the Fed hikes the interest, interest on the debt, I think, is the fastest growing federal program right now, just oh, in terms of absolutely. its size. absolutely. And if yeah. you think about it, like they're just going to be paying interest. That means that's a whole bunch of government spending that doesn't actually, you know, we don't see it in terms of increased government services. Right. And so that's like the other side of it that I think it's somewhat intuitive if you really like drill down to brass tacks. But for whatever reason, a lot of people just like don't care very much about it. Right. And as you and I have talked about offline, if this were Argentina for example, the U.S. actually criticizes foreign governments for doing what we do, which is run up debt and then try to, you know, deal with it through fiscal policy, like printing money. That is yeah. exactly what we've been using tools like the IMF and the World Bank to punish governments who do that <laughs> historically, right? Which is such a weird thing for us to do, right? Like this idea that we're sort of these like, you know, the example setters. Right. But then it's like, okay, well, in this area, like, will this type of practice catch up with us in the end? What do you think? I yeah. mean, how do you look at it? Well, I think if, if the U.S. were receiving one of these structural adjustment loans from the IMF that we used to give countries, I don't know if we do this anymore. Structural adjustment loan, everyone drink. <laughs> yeah, we would, we, would, we would be imposing conditions on ourselves mm -hmm. saying, you know, st stop spending more money than you have cut the bloat within your government, et cetera. These are all things that, <laughs> that we would be forcing other countries yeah. to do, but we don't do ourselves. And so for me, I think what, what Musk... There's a hypocrisy. I think one of the problems with him is that he's not clean on this because he's received oh, so many subsidies over the years. And people have pointed out that 
you know, it's possible, I don't know if this is what's going on, but that he's pulling up the ladder after he's climbed the government subsidy. Well, uh, you know. some, some evidence that sort of bolsters that point, because I think that's a really good critique. I mean, he's receiving solar panel subsidies, or, or his companies, rather, are receiving solar panel subsidies and subsidies for electric vehicles, right? You know, I think the old subsidy was something to the tune of $7,500, and now they're contemplating bringing that up to 12500 but one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is the 12500 subsidy will only apply to U.S.-made union shops that are, uh, you know, manufacturing electric vehicles. And he's not union. He's yeah. not union. And so it's like, okay, on one hand, is this a super principled libertarian argument? You know, I want him to be our lovely libertarian prince who's articulating, you know, in my view, all of the right theories of governance. But also, we do have to maintain just a little bit of skepticism and wonder, okay, you know, is this just a subsidy that he's not going to be entitled to because of the union string attached? Right, right. Well, going back to Warren, and, and speaking of hypocrisy, <laughs> who is Elizabeth Warren in this debate? Like, people, there's all sorts of, like, I think, claims about how wealthy she is, how many taxes she pays. Like, what do we know about her here? I mean... You probably are aware of this, but like, you know, her and her husband, Bruce Mann, their net worth is what, like 12 million or something? Like these are also millionaires, not right. anywhere near the level of Elon Musk. But in terms of like, you know, everybody has the opportunity to decide to personally voluntarily redistribute their wealth to take care of the least among us. You know, and right. many people take that, like I know in lots of religious cultures, like faith cultures, there's, you know, a lot of almsgiving and tithing and this idea of like, you should donate 10% of your salary. Okay, well, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren don't really do that. Uh, not to say that they're part of the faith traditions that, you know, necessitate that, that stipulate that, but like there is an example they could yeah. set, right? Right. Uh, and I think they open themselves up to charges of hypocrisy by not doing that. But also with Warren, I mean, you just, I, I really think she's losing her edge these days, uh, which isn't a sexist attack. Uh, you know, I have no reason to be sexist uh, toward her. It's, it's more of a matter of she keeps trying to pin problems in the economy and problems uh, with our sort of fiscal health on, she keeps trying to scapegoat all kinds of people and entities that just are like not obvious causes of it. You know, Elon Musk is not the reason why a bunch of people in this country are poor. Uh, he also doesn't write the tax code. Yeah, exactly. Right? Elizabeth Warren and her colleagues do. So I yeah. think if they want to have him pay more taxes, they should change the law. How many people totally. do you know voluntarily pay, including US senators, by the way, how many people voluntarily pay more taxes? I don't know too many people who I mean, everybody, even if they're, you know, sensibly super progressive, they still try to minimize their tax burden, right? Like, right. this is a thing we see all the time. I mean, she keeps also just like scapegoating all kinds of people, right? When when turkey prices were high and Thanksgiving was coming up, she was blaming like big poultry legitimately. Right. And then this week, the, the tweets about like big meat. And it's like, okay, well, yes, I am open to the idea that there could be some bad practices. Factory farms. Yeah, or yeah, yeah absolutely. Like there's lots of yeah. things to critique within those industries. But the reason why prices are really expensive right now is because we're seeing crazy, not unprecedented inflation, but inflation the likes of which we haven't seen in many decades. Right, since before I think both of us were born. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing I that, that drives me nuts about her is her hypocrisy on schools. So she, <laughs> she had, before she became an elected official, had written somewhat uh, provingly of, even vouchers and charters, right? Yeah. And then once she got elected, uh, once like the unions really put the pressure on her in Massachusetts, she really pulled back and mm -hmm. she opposes vouchers. She opposed the Massachusetts charter school expansion. And it came out, she was very dodgy about this, but it came out, I think in part through some uh, reporting at Reason, that she sent her son to a private school, but she lied about it. There was a, a parent activist named Sarah Carpenter who pushed her and asked, hey, did you send your, your children to 
private school? And Warren said no. And then it, it <laughs> turns out- As if it out, wouldn't come out, right? Yeah, and it turns <laughs> out that she did. And I guess this gets to this larger point, which is she's of the 1%. She sends her kids to private schools, but she wants to deny those opportunities to others. And I think this is the problem right now, I think, with progressive branding and why they're so, you know, I think they're they're exposed to these populist critiques is because it, it really is a party in many ways being run by elites who want to dictate sort of terms to people who like, in, maybe this is a good segue to Omicron, <laughs> but people who want to, you know, layer on regulation and taxes on other people, but they don't want to abide by them themselves. Yeah. I also think there's something to be said for like, I wonder, and I don't want this to happen, right? Because I'm in favor of, you know, as you know, much, much, much lower taxes than what we currently have and much less government spending and really, you know, taking a knife to a lot of government programs. But one thing that I do wonder strategy wise politically is how much more could progressives or, you know, just sort of mainstream Democrats appeal to people if they were good stewards of the money that they had already taken from people, right. the money that they collect via taxation. What if we had really well functioning government programs, right? Like that would sort of prove it's almost like I think with any business or with any, you know, career, like professional project, you have to, you know, provide a report to stakeholders to prove that you are doing the things you said you would do. Right. The U.S. government doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, we talk about this a lot here all the time, but if you look at California or New York, two states that are run almost exclusively by Democrats, they're not great use cases for government in many ways. I wish they were in many ways, because there's certain things I would love government to be much better at. Educating our kids is, is a big one. And both of those states have such huge problems. If you look at if de Blasio's administration, for example, where we've seen you know dramatic increases in the size of government, but not a lot of evidence that those increases in government have led to uh, the most vulnerable people being better off. Absolutely. I mean, we see this, I think COVID policy is a great example where some amount of state capacity could have been something that improves uh, our collective lot. But right. instead, you know, we're really seeing a lot of the foibles with governance at all levels, especially in, in blue states and blue cities. I mean, red states and red cities have their own problems. Um, but in terms of like, this is an opportunity where we could have uh, mobilized state resources for good, I think in some ways. And I, I think I favor slightly different policy approaches than many other people in this room do. But there's also just something to be said for like, if there was ever a time to do this well and to, you know, mobilize the government to do these things, to marshal its forces, this was the time. Right. And it really seems like we haven't done that well. And now we're facing a whole nother variant. To, right. And so speaking of that, it. you recently wrote in the New York Post criticizing New York's governor. Juxtapose the New York governor for us uh, against, say, Jared Polis in Colorado, because I think you've compared the two of them, two Democratic governors, but who've had it, very different responses to Omicron. Yeah, I think the well, I think more information is emerging sort of by the day with Omicron. So I think it'll be interesting partially to see how this discourse evolves. I mean, what Hochul has done and de Blasio, um, you know, she she implemented a mask mandate uh, for the whole state of New York for indoors. You either have to prove vaccination status or wear a mask. The thing is, for grocery stores or for pharmacies or other sort of quick stops, they're not really going to be having you show your vaccine card. It's effectively a, a mask mandate. And Bill de Blasio is mandating that, you know, private sector employees be vaccinated and show proof of vaccination within the city, as well as children as young as five. Um, so that's happening in New York. And then in Colorado, basically, Polis, who's also a Democrat, is pursuing what I think is a much more sensible approach where he's saying, hey, look, I expect people to get vaccinated. Those who don't get vaccinated bear the own bear the consequences of their decision. I'm not happy about that. I think they should get vaccinated. 
but they've made their choice. They've made their bed and, and, you know, there's not much we can do. And it is important to basically make it so that the vaccinated people who are continuing to be really, you know, scrupulous about uh, safety precautions, who are getting their booster shots, all these different things, we need to have an off ramp. So like, no, we should not be implementing more mask mandates that force them to, you know, live a sort of half life. No, we do not need to to lock down businesses and have school closures. Like you've done your part. Uh, and I, I do think there's a useful caveat with all of this, which is like, you can tell people they've done their part as much as you want. The virus might have different plans for us all, right? right. But I do think there is a useful grain of truth in all of this, which is like, I, I do think to a degree, we are at a stage where those of us who want to be protected against, you know, serious illness and death have been able to do so by and large. And that's a huge blessing. And it's important for people to have an off ramp. It's important for our public health related asks to be specific and to be rare, as opposed to sort of this constant, you know, layering on that we're seeing in New York where it's like, right. you did this and now you do this and now you need to do all this. I think other most things. people and don't even know what the restrictions are anymore, honestly. Oh, I yeah. Think, I think if We've I hadn't even been researching it. for this, I wouldn't even have known what the new restrictions were. I also do think there's another point that is worth considering, which is like with restrictions on little children being allowed to be in public if they're unvaccinated, we're not giving families very much time. I right. interviewed a whole bunch of New York parents uh, asking you know, their thoughts on de Blasio's mandate. And a lot of them were in the wait and see camp. A lot of them were just in the, hey, I just need a few minutes. I just need some time. I just need to figure this out, do my research, go through the clinical trials, those types of things, consult with my pediatrician. Right. They're not being given the time to do that. I mean, the, the mandate for young children, I believe went into effect this week. And again, also there's like, this was only opened up to the youngest age group merely weeks ago. So like even in terms of scheduling appointments and having that two week period where immunity sets in and where antibodies are formed, you know, a lot of people are being, a lot of people's children are being barred from New York society just in time for the holidays without even having had time to schedule an appointment, let alone have right. the antibodies develop. So I'm with you on a lot of this in the sense of like, I'm more polis than, than yeah. Hochul, Hochul, how do we say it? I think so, Hochul. yeah. In part because I'm, I like you were talking about like the changes need to be rare, they need to be well thought out. And also we need to just get back to life. We don't know how, how long this is gonna go. And I've, I interviewed a business owner for a different podcast this week who runs a brewery and who's just exhausted by trying to keep up with the compliance and being the COVID cops and they're, and they're just not equipped to handle all of this. Where yeah. I think I depart, at least ideologically, is that, and where I struggle is that this is a tragedy of the common situation in many oh, ways. Totally. It's, sometimes this is being framed as an individual choice when herd immunity, but also infections is a, is a common issue. So for instance, my grandma could be triple boosted, but for her to feel safe going out and engaging with people, which should be like something she could take for granted, it helps so much if everybody makes that choice to be vaccinated, which is why I'm probably more supportive of mandates for vaccines. It's not because of my own health. I'm not that worried about myself, but I'm worried about people like me infecting my grandmother who is at risk. And that's like a commons issue. You know what oh, I'm saying? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, this is actually something I was sort of reflecting on earlier this week as like, you know, am I considering this enough when thinking about which public policy solutions I, I favor? There's something like three to 10 million immunocompromised people who live in the US. I mean, that's what one to 3% of our population. That's not an insignificant number. That's sometimes, you know, people who are HIV positive, people who've received, um, you know, organ transplants, people who are undergoing cancer treatment. Like, this is like not an insignificant part of our population. And I was sort of wondering, you know, what's the best way to incorporate those risks into how we perceive what, what types of policies we advocate for the whole. I do think, though, that 
there is an interesting, I think maybe I'm more defeatist than you are with some yeah. of this, where it's a little bit like we live in a country where we give a lot of deference to people's individual rights and their medical freedom. We allow a lot of opt-outs. We always have for all kinds of childhood, vac not for all childhood vaccinations, but for a lot of those immunizations. You know, if every school district has, you know, different policies and different states have different policies, but by and large for religious exemptions, you can typically acquire that for your child. And so I'm sort of wondering like what, what is our best course of action understanding that like we'll always have florida right right uh, right and i just yes. sort of don't know what to do in the absence of that one thing that i think is helpful though is the antivirals that are being developed by merck and pfizer yeah some good news this week yeah yeah but we are seeing like the merck pill that they've developed which basically is something where you have to detect that you have covid and then take consume these pills within pretty three quickly to five days. yeah yeah that's yeah. the problem i think and that is super expensive right now oh yeah so, this and is they're where not the FDA authorized. Yeah, this yeah. is where the government, like, you know, we need to get these tests out faster. Like, testing should be more widespread. We need to move with deliberate speed on uh, these other treatments because, like, there are, even people who are vaccinated will benefit from these treatments, but especially people who aren't. But there's, there was also another controversy outside of government that I think you weighed in on, at least on Twitter, which is Kroger, which mm -hmm. I think is charging. I think there's like this growing number of companies and individuals who are advocating for penalizing people who are unvaccinated. And Kroger, I think, is charging employees who are unvaccinated more. They're charging them to basically like be unvaccinated. Yeah, uh, for their health insurance policies and revoking paid sick leave, which is the thing that I actually think is maybe it's the less sexy thing to talk about, but I think it might be the more important thing. Yeah, we talk and we talked about this on another on, on in a different context because it was an Illinois representative who was advocating for the government to do something similar in, in Illinois. And what we said, and I think you agree with this, is this seems to open up a whole can of worms outside of COVID because then what other health choices should we be penalizing people for? I think you pointed out like what's people's BMI and like are they smoking? Are they drinking? Because sexual partners even like what's your right. STI risk? Right. right? I, I, I'm I'm with you on this. As much as I want people to be vaccinated, I think it's a terrible road to go down to say all right, we're gonna we're gonna start discriminating against our employees based on their health choices, uh, unless you want to go there, right? Like like do you want your company to be like a Singapore like sort of optimizer? But then I think there's a whole bunch more we need to, that we need to add to COVID. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's worth noting that like with some insurance policies, we already do take some of these factors into account, but this would be a huge expansion, a huge widening of that. Um, I do think one of like the perennial lessons that we learn in all public policymaking, but also specifically with COVID is like, what incentives are created by these things? Like if you, if you revoke the paid sick leave of Kroger employees, okay, what incentive are you creating for them to come to work sick? or for them to seek another job elsewhere because that's just not sustainable. And we should all expect as this becomes endemic to get sick more often, which is a sad, sad reality. But it is important that we set people up with the tools to succeed. I mean, I'm even considering with the early detection of, of this variant, how we've basically done some amount of sealing of the borders, shutting off the US for, for travelers from South Africa, as if the as if the, the variant in any way discriminates against what your passport is, as opposed to where you specifically were. And it's just one or of those that things. Or that, like, you know, the, the Omicron train had left the station at that point. Exactly. It's just, it's, it no. feels like more performative than it Totally. Else. But it's also just like, what incentive does this create for countries to report to the rest of the world what's happening if right. what happens is they get sanctioned? If what happens is their people get cut off from being able to do international travel, if they get cut off from participating in the global economy, right. it creates a really bad incentive. And it's confusing to me, like what you're talking about, like the train's already left the station. So what is the efficacy of this and what are the incentives created? Yeah, well, with that, uh, I think we'll 
we'll we'll pause this discussion and come back from the you know hopefully we'll come back from the break with a better omicron situation (laughs) hopefully we'll be less defeated or we might just be faces on a screen because we might be (laughs) back in in another uh another phase of this pandemic but uh have a great break and uh thanks for coming in thank you well that's the end of our show that is our last show of 2021 we'll be back in early january in the meantime please subscribe to us on youtube if you haven't yet or, or wherever you get your podcasts and go in there and give us a review so we'll see you later be safe out there